Welcome to Brainstorm by Us Against Alzheimer's, a patient-centered nonprofit organization. Your host, Meryl Comer, is a co-founder, 24-year caregiver, an Emmy Award-winning journalist, and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Slow Dancing with a Stranger. This is Brainstorm, and I'm Meryl Comer. The Alzheimer's journey, often called the long goodbye, can average from 3 to 20-plus years. Typically, people living with late-stage Alzheimer's or another dementia decline to the point where they're no longer able to communicate. But sometimes we hear anecdotes about individuals who suddenly seem, even for a short window of time, to be able to communicate coherently. This phenomenon is called paradoxical lucidity in dementia. Joining us is Dr. Joan Griffin, Professor of Health Services Research at the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and consultant at the Kern Center for the Science of Healthcare Delivery at the Mayo Clinic. Dr. Griffin is leading a landmark study to understand these lucid moments and how they affect family caregivers. Dr. Griffin, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure, Meryl. Thanks so much for inviting me. Can you talk more about lucidity in dementia, what it is exactly, and why there's such little data on the subject? Yeah, it's a very interesting area that's relatively new for scientific inquiry. There's not a lot of research on it. And so describing it's really difficult because we don't have really clear scientific definitions. And even the term paradox lucidity has been coined by NIH as sort of a working term. We're not sure if the word paradoxical is really an appropriate word for these types of episodes. But what we're trying to capture or think about in this research and the research that's being done in this area are those moments for people, as you mentioned in your introduction, those moments for people who we assume have lost the ability to communicate that all of a sudden sort of emerge into a period of lucidity and are able to communicate either verbally or non-verbally with family or friends or trusted caretakers and sort of regain some of the ability to communicate in ways that they didn't think that they could or the family members didn't think that they could. So there's all kinds of questions that we're beginning to dive into and think about, about consciousness and about people's ability in late-stage Alzheimer's to be able to have these sort of energy bursts and communicate. And then the questions that we've really been trying to tackle is what does this mean for family caregivers? How do they experience those episodes? And do they make different types of decisions? And do they think about their loved one in different ways after these episodes occur? So it's a pretty wide open field right now, which makes it a very exciting place to be for studying but also challenging because we don't have clear definitions that we typically rely on in science. Does that definition also reply to these heartwarming reports of loved ones who have been silent for years, and then they respond to music from their past and start singing? Is that in that same category or different? So we think it is. There seem to be some triggers for these episodes. The ones that we hear about a lot have to do with music. It's becoming clear that it taps into a part of the consciousness, part of the brain that is almost primal, almost sort of very deep and instinctual. So music is a big one. Rituals, a lot of religious rituals 
And sometimes just the presence of family members or trusted people around that have shared experiences or shared memories with the person living with Alzheimer's, those seem to be pretty common triggers. But we are also finding that some of these episodes are not triggered by any of those things, that they just sort of pop up. And I don't want to say that they're random because they may not be random, but they just sort of pop up unexpectedly. As a longtime caregiver who experienced it with both my husband and my mother, you're always trying to reach in and try to validate what you're doing for them. So these episodes really take you by surprise. And my instinct was to try to repeat it and find out everything about the surrounding so I could replicate it. (laughs) Unfortunately, I could not. But why is it important to understand the caregiver's view of these episodes as a way to look at transitions in caregiving? That's a great question. And I think one of the reasons why it's really important to understand the caregiver's perspective is that caregivers may experience these episodes and change their own behavior. They may change the way that they provide care. They may make decisions differently than they would had they not experienced one of these episodes. So some of the recent work that we've published is around sort of how caregivers appraise these episodes. And we found that a percentage of people, maybe around 10% of people, see these as very positive episodes, but also stressful. They can make meaning out of them. They see them as a blessing, but they also find them stressful because now they sort of have to think about how they're going to do things differently, maybe, or whether they need to have more stimulation in their loved one's daily plan, or do they decide not to send the person to memory care, or do they delay those decisions a little bit longer? So all of a sudden, these episodes, as meaningful, as indelible as they are, often bring on another set of questions. And so part of what we're hoping to do is better understand them so we can prepare caregivers and say, hey, these might happen. They might not, but they might. And if they do happen, here are some of the reasons why they might happen. Here are some of the strategies that you could use for preparing yourself and the decisions that you might need to make after. If we could begin to set expectations and prepare people for what might come with these episodes, it might relieve some of the the stressful part and some of the burden that caregivers experience, given it's a very burdensome experience anyway. And so this kind of adds to it. For experts like yourself, I think it's called transition theory. You're trying to help us get through the journey. You've partnered with Us Against Alzheimer's A-List research team. Can you describe the study and the value of having research-ready current and former caregivers eager to share their experience? The partnership with Us Against Alzheimer's has been incredibly important for us to move this research forward. And I would say that it really is a partnership. I've learned a lot from Us Against Alzheimer's and the A-List group and a lot from the participants in the A-List as well. The challenge with this type of science is that we don't know when these episodes happen and we don't know how long they happen. And so you need a pretty large sample of people to be able to inquire about their own experiences. If we had a sample of maybe 50 people, it might be that one or two or three of those people have experienced this and they could tell us about their own personal journey with it. 
But those three people, as important it is for them, it doesn't give us a lot to go on as far as what the trends and the predictors are for these episodes. So we need a large sample of caregivers to help describe what these episodes are like in order for us to better understand them. And so I think the depth of the A-list, how many caregivers are involved and actively participating is critically important for science to advance in this area. And I mean, we've done a a number of studies together now, and the caregivers in the A-list are incredibly generous with their time. And they're motivated to advance science in dementia and Alzheimer's and to better the experiences for the caregivers that follow behind them. So because of that commitment and the size of the population in the A-list, it's just been an incredible resource for us. And I think given how new this field is and understanding these episodes of lucidity, it's just been such an amazing resource for us to work with the A-list and have them be partners. Thank you. I think it's very validating that your observations matter to researchers and that we can help accelerate the research. Because if you had to do that alone, how long would it take? Oh, (laughs) Uh, a career, a lifetime? Yeah. What are the implications of the results? You gave us some of the responses from the caregivers, but what are the implications? Well, I think we're going about this in a number of different phases. And when they're earlier phases right now, and what we're trying to do in this early phase of the research is to understand the caregiver appraisal or the caregiver perception of what's going on in order to better develop materials, education, guidance for caregivers, but also to help educate healthcare providers so that they can help care for or guide caregivers during this experience. So the first part of this research is really trying to better understand what we mean by this term of paradoxical lucidity. Is that the right term? So it has a lot to do with how are we making these definitions? How are we going to measure this? And how are we going to assess whether something that happens is considered to be a lucid episode or not? Could it be an episode of delirium instead of an episode of lucidity? How do we begin to conceptualize these episodes? Do you have to have somebody who understands the context of the episode for it to be validated as lucid or not? We had one caregiver who shared an experience with us who said that she went to go visit her mom who was in memory care and her mom had been nonverbal for a number of years and wasn't ambulatory. So she wasn't getting up and walking around and she went to go visit her mom and the charge nurse said, oh, your mom actually got up today, but she's not making any sense. She's trying to speak, but she's not making any sense. So the daughter went into her mom's room. Her mom had gotten up and out of her bed and moved across the room and sat in a chair and was talking to her daughter And what probably didn't make sense to the nurse, but what she was relaying were stories from the the daughter's childhood that were very specific to some troubling things that happened in their family. And they almost sounded like they were out of a spy movie. And so the nurse may have perceived or may have assumed that these were just sort of ramblings that didn't make any sense. But to the daughter, they made a lot of sense. And so she gave it context. And so do we need that validating person to help us understand whether it's a lucid moment or not? So that's a lot of the groundwork that we're doing in this first part of the study. And then the second phase, which is 
hopefully going to start this fall, is we'll be following current caregivers for a year and trying to capture those lucid episodes at the time that they happen. And so we'll be trying to capture them in the moment and understand a lot of the triggers and a lot of the reactions to them. And that way we might be able to better understand whether in the long run they're having an impact on caregivers. So up until this point, a lot of the research in this area has been done towards the end of life. And there's been an assumption that these lucid episodes are tied towards the end of life. And we know that this is a phenomenon that happens um, with people who are not living with Alzheimer's or dementia. You know, sometimes people call it the energy surge at the end of life, where someone who is dying with cancer or heart failure has a, a moment of energy when they had not been able to get up and eat or drink or talk to anybody. They get up and have a conversation with their loved one. And the loved one thinks, oh my gosh, things are getting better. And then 24, 48 hours later, they pass away. So the earlier research in these episodes of lucidity among people with Alzheimer's and dementia sort of thought that it was in that same time period towards the end of life. And our early research is showing that it's not necessarily at the end of life, but a lot of focus has been towards the end of life. So one of the things that we're curious about is whether these episodes affect grief. Do they help people manage grief after someone's died better? Or do they actually add to the grief? Is the meaning that comes out of them for caregivers a way for them to reflect and think about the positive experience that they had with that relationship and therefore sort of lessen the grieving process? The grief question is one that we're really interested in. The burden question, decision-making, all those things I think are going to be really important in this next phase of the research where we can track and follow people over time. Joan, from your experience, do you always recommend to caregivers to treat their loved ones as present? Absolutely. You know, I think one of the things that has really opened our eyes in this study is that, you know, and this is a hypothesis and it hasn't been proven yet, but is there some level of awareness all the time that is often ignored or overlooked? And, you know, a lot of times you'll talk to caregivers and they're like, well, you know, my loved one's completely gone. They don't communicate at all. And they're just kind of out of it. And I would argue and maybe talk to caregivers and say, that may not be the case. They're still there. There's still, there are still maybe levels of awareness. They just may not be able to rise to the energy level to communicate with you yet. And I think we don't know enough about how the brain works during this late stage in disease and how there may be energy reserves that are reserved for important times that people draw on. And that's maybe one of the things that these episodes stem from. So I'm very cognizant and very aware that we need to be respectful. There may be awareness on our loved one's side and overlooking it, I think, takes away some of their dignity. I think it's a really important thing to maintain as much dignity as possible. It's really, I think, sad for me to see when the agency of people living with this disease is sort of ignored. This research is funded as part of a multi-tiered study supported by the National Institute of Aging to capture different aspects of the experience. What else are they looking for? Well, so there's been five studies that have been funded through the National Institutes on Aging, and 
it's been super interesting to look at this because all five different research centers are sort of looking at this from a different lens. We're looking at it from the family caregiver lens. There's another group that's looking at it from the paid caregiver or the memory care nursing home setting from the providers who are providing bedside care. There are some groups that are looking at the linguistics of what happens during these lucid episodes. Can we gather more information about what kinds of verbal and nonverbal cues are happening? There's a group that's trying to do more on the conceptualization of consciousness and includes a philosopher and an ethicist and speech and language pathologist. I think that we're kind of looking at this as a big puzzle. And each of us probably sort of is trying to capture one puzzle piece so that we can put the whole thing together. But it's really exciting because I think that there's so much for us to learn and we're learning from each other. So I see this as a really collaborative group that is passionate and interested in the same subject, but taking it from a different lens. One of the groups is doing video and audio in the room of the person living with Alzheimer's and dementia so that they can capture moments that may not be observed by family or by trusted caregivers. So it's it's a really interesting approach. And I think probably the way that science should be done, you know, that we're doing this collaboratively. Well, thank you for focusing on caregivers in our patient-centric healthcare system. Caregivers tend to be put to the side or a bit ignored. Joan, we're very excited about the work that we're doing with you. And we really thank you for joining us. Also, congratulations on your research study. It's just been published in the Alzheimer's Association, Alzheimer's and Dementia Journal. We'll be tracking the next phase and we'll be staying with you and inviting you back. I would love to come back. We'll have lots to share, I know. Us Against Alzheimer's A-List is an online community where people living with dementia, their caregivers, and anyone interested in brain health come together to share their insights. We call it the science of us. Join more than 10,000 A-List members making what matters most heard. Sign up at alistforresearch.org. That's A-List, the number four, research.org. That's it for this edition of Brainstorm. I'm Errol Comer. Thank you for joining us. Support for Brainstorm by Us Against Alzheimer's comes from Karen and Chris Siegel. Subscribe to Brainstorm through your favorite podcast platform and join us for new episodes on the first and third Tuesday of every month.